Greetings, my good people. How are you? What is happening? What is going on? What is the latest and greatest? That's right. We're six days into the new year. So hopefully whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's tweaking some lifestyle changes, improving your diet, increased exercise, being kind, courteous, whatever it may be. I hope you're on a continued path to being that much more better this year than in years past. And speaking of which, I plan to do the same as I deliver everything that's happening in the world of sports here on this edition, the first edition of the year and the decade of the J Reels podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 107 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It's a Monday, January the 6th in the year of our Lord, 2020. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. That's right. What is on tap for this podcast? Well, it goes as follows. We'll recap the life of a one David Stern, the former NBA commissioner who passed away at the age of 77 on New Year's Day. Obviously, everything that he'd done throughout the course of his career, bringing the NBA to heights that certainly were unseen when you look at what the NBA had gone through, especially in the late 70s. So we'll certainly revisit and go through everything that had happened throughout his career and what he's done for this league. We'll also touch in on more stuff on the hardwood as well as the ice, the diamond, and the sense where pitchers and catchers are going to report five weeks from today. That's right. So a week after the Super Bowl, you're going to have the feelings and the fuzzy thoughts of spring as baseball is right around the corner, which is hard to imagine when you think about it. But we're going to recap a wild, wild, wild card weekend in the NFL as we have three themes before we delve into the games. And they pretty much go 1A one, one and then 3 because we're going to skip 2. 1 are the six seeds winning their games on the road in New England and New Orleans that a lot of people, I'm sure, had picked at the beginning of the year to see a Saints-Patriots Super Bowl. Well, that is obviously not going to happen. And then with the 1A being, is this the end for Tom Brady in New England? Same for Drew Brees, not in the sense of retirement, but as far as the championship window closing, this is the third straight year that they've just suffered a brutal playoff loss for the New Orleans Saints. Obviously, we're going to touch on that later on. So that is your 1A and number one with the six seeds winning on the road and the impact that that's going to have for the playoffs moving forward. And then the other thing is Houston being able to pull that game out. Buffalo had that in the bag, and that's going to be the first game that we're going to touch on because Seattle and Philadelphia, not a lot of drama there. And, of course, I tied in the New England and New Orleans loss as the 1A. But we'll start with the Buffalo-Houston, which is the third thing. And if you're a Bills fan, if you're Bills Mafia, if you're the team, coach, organization, whomever it may be, I'm sure you're still kicking yourself considering what had transpired down in Houston in the first game of the weekend. Because not to say that once you're up 16-0, and chances are you should have been up at least 20-0. It reminded me a little bit of the Ohio State-Clemson game. Because if you watched the semifinal just a week ago, where Ohio State got off to that lead, and then we know Clemson came back right before to have to make it 16-14. But the chances that the Bills had, whether it was a drop pass in the end zone by Duke Williams, whether well, it was the one catch by John Brown that was on the sideline where he wasn't able to drag in his second foot where they would have had it first and goal. Instead, they kicked field goals out of those two possessions. And instead of it being, like I said, whether it be 20 to nothing or dare I even say 27 nothing, a 16 nothing lead, even though you're halfway through the third quarter when you go up by two scores, if you figure with the two touchdowns and two, the two two-point conversions, the... Houston Texans, who pretty much did nothing in that first half, we understand that Deshaun Watson was under siege. The Bill defense certainly showed up. But at the same time, the 60-minute mantra that everybody certainly loves to speak, and it's rightfully so because the Buffalo Bills did not play the full 60 minutes, especially when it came to defense, because at that next drive, for whatever the reason, Deshaun Watson and company, the switch went on, They were able to score, especially on that long touchdown run that he had, breaking tackles, getting into the end zone, and then punching it in for two there to make it 16-8. And even then, with the game at a one score, the Bills, who give credit to Josh Allen, he did have a very good game, 92 yards on the ground in the air. He made some key throws throughout the portion of the first half, and then, of course, going into the second half. But then the fumble there in the fourth quarter, which was huge, that turned into three points for the Bills. And then you had a situation where even at 16-11, the Texans were able to march on down the field. Carlos Hyde, who screwed up on the one play there, but then, of course, got it into the end zone there when they're down at the goal line to make it 19-16. And then you're thinking, okay, Texans now have the lead. You figured that they were going to cruise on with about four minutes to go, I believe it was. And then that's when the 
drama ensued. The Bills had the ball there late where they actually went for it on the 4th and 27, which to me was just head-scratching considering that they had three timeouts. They could have punted the ball, pinned the Texans back, hopefully near the goal line or at least inside the 10, but that didn't happen. I understand at that point you want to try to see if you could make a play, maybe even draw a flag there, but 4th and 27 for that, and obviously out of field goal range, uh, that was not a smart move there by Sean McDermott. But then, of course, Bill O'Brien then returned the favor because even as the Texans had the ball, and again, Bills had all three of their timeouts, so now it comes down to a fourth and a long yard, and what happens? Instead of trying to maybe run an option or some type of RPO, you had Deshaun Watson go right into the teeth of the offensive line and try to squeeze in there to get the first down. He gets stuffed there, and for whatever that was worth, Bill O'Brien certainly had a brain lock there because he has a guy who has been as elusive and certainly has been on the go here from pretty much the six-minute mark of the third quarter, and for them to get stopped there and have Buffalo get another shot to go down the field, in which they did, to kick the field goal, to make it 19-19, and to go into overtime was certainly beyond me. So you certainly had some terrible coaching decisions there at the end of the game or at the end of regulation with Buffalo and Houston, and then you get into overtime. Both teams had the ball. And then, of course, where Houston gets the ball, and then you have the miraculous Superman players, we'll call it. And we've seen this before with Deshaun Watson. Remember that Raider game in the regular season where he got hit and it looked like he probably could have been concussed, but he still was able to fix his helmet, completed the pass, game-winning touchdown against the Raiders. I believe that was, what, week five, week six, way back early in the regular season. Well, he had not only a similar play, but a better play where it looked like he was about to be sandwiched. And he took two big hits, was still on his feet, Completed that pass to Taiwan Jones, who ran down the field and pretty much set up the game-winning field goal. And that was a huge moment for the Texans, and not only that, even for the quarterback. Because although you couldn't blame it all on him when they're down 16 nothing, and he not that he played bad, you look at his final stats, he was actually pretty good. But the Texans, who have been in this spot a million times and lost all these types of games at home, and I understand that they had you know, T.J. Yates as your quarterback and they certainly were not at 100%. You know, J.J. Watt out of the lineup, and he had a big sack in the game, as a matter of fact, J.J. Watt, which led to one of the Buffalo Bills field goals. But this was a huge moment for the Texans. Now, of course, they have house money going into Kansas City next week, and this is a place where they actually won earlier this year, so they have that in their back pocket. But just a big win, and if you're the Bills, it is a brutal loss. Even Josh Allen said it in the postgame. I get it that it's football and anything can happen. And if this was 16 nothing in the fourth quarter, that's one thing. But it's funny how the season bookends one another because if you recall, the Bills played the Jets in week one. Now you ask, what does that matter, Jay Reels? Who cares? Well, remember, the Jets had a 16 nothing lead in the third quarter against Buffalo. And what happened? They came back and won the game. So here it was on the road, playoff game, playing well. Obviously, left points on the table, which are going to kick and scream about all winter long. And here it is. They go down 22-19. In Houston, game number one, which, again, it's not going to sit well. I get it that this was a game was tooth and nail, and you should have won the game. Let's face it. Even though they took the lead, we understand that the Texans did have a lead there late, and you had to come back to get the equalizer, which you did. But obviously, you weren't able to get the points when needed, especially early in the game and obviously in the overtime. So tough loss for Buffalo. You would hope that they would learn, especially their coach. And certainly a good building block for the quarterback who had a good game, then have a great game. And uh, Houston moves on there to play the Chiefs, as I said earlier. Now, as far as the Saturday night game, this was, I'm not going to sit here and say it was puzzling, it was shocking. Yes, it's shocking from the standpoint of you have a Tennessee team that has the dominant running back and nothing much else on offense. Yeah, I understand A.J. Brown's a very good wide receiver. You have the tight end that made the touchdown catch on the opening drive, a kid from Harvard, Anthony Ferkser, who, let's face it, I mean, nobody's going to confuse him with Rob Gronkowski. And then when you look at what Tannehill did in the game, he was only 8 for 15. What do you have, 72 yards passing. He did have that pick, which was a bad pick by him off his back foot, trying to be a hero there, but certainly didn't come back to bite him. But when you look at this game, it's it's about the Titans, yes, because they went into Foxborough. Mike Vrabel, of course, the former player, won Super Bowls there in the early, mid-2000s and upstaged his uh, former coach in Bill Belichick. But really what this boils down to is the Patriots' ineptitude. They were able to get 13 points there in the first half, but the killer 
when all is said and done, is having first and goal, having those opportunities to try to punch it in. They ran three straight runs. They got stuffed. They kicked a field goal. And then right down the field was Derrick Henry. And right before the half, in typical Patriot fashion, but it happened to them this time, the Titans were able to get the go-ahead score that made it 14-13, and then it was just a defensive struggle from there on out. The Pats, they couldn't do anything. They were unable to muster any type of offensive threat. And we understand that this team, pretty much over the last five, six weeks of the season, were certainly from hunger when it comes to trying to get any type of offensive rhythm, any continuity, whatever it may be. And it's crazy because when you look at the first eight weeks of the year, they were 8-0, and and they were flying high, and everybody's thinking, oh boy, Pats are on their way to another Super Bowl, so on and so forth, the defense that everybody raved about. And if you've listened to this podcast, and I won't go into it again, you just have to look listen back to last week or the week before, this defense certainly wasn't anything close to an 85 Bear or 2000 Raven defense as they were claiming it to be. And I certainly wasn't a believer in that. But the bottom line was is that they were not able to muster up any points in the second half of this game. They certainly had... Very little weapons. When you look at the even the touchdown, it was a jet sweep to Julian Edelman, who had a huge drop there. I believe it was on the second and sixth there late in the game. And only had two catches in the game, was ineffective. You could pretty much say that for all the wide receivers, Brady as well. And it's a bitter loss because when you look at how they started at 8-0, think about this. Out of the last nine games, they were 4-5. Four 4-5. And, five. Four and, five. and in the process, they lost... Three of those games at home, which is certainly unpatriot-like. Now, were they running out of gas as you got to the end of the season? Quite possibly. When you look what happened last week against Miami, and maybe they needed that bye. We understand that they have a lot of young pieces on offense, but considering the quarterback is 42 years of age, and maybe that defense needed a blow for a week, and it just goes to show you that seeding in the NFL, especially when it comes to having that bye, is crucial. Now, it doesn't guarantee you a Super Bowl by any stretch, but at the same time, it was certainly big for them to blow that spot, and you kind of seen it here Saturday night where the Patriots couldn't muster anything on offense and give credit to the Titans as Derrick Henry ran all over him. He had 100 yards just in the first half. He ended up with, what, 184, I believe, and give credit to them. And I actually think that that's going to be a better matchup next week. I certainly wouldn't want to see Houston go back to Baltimore I thought the game would be a little bit better. And again, this is just me looking at the crystal ball. Because remember, Houston went to Baltimore earlier this year and they lost 41-7. And sometimes when you play a team the second time, especially when you got blown out the first time, you're a little bit better the second time around. But I think Tennessee is going to be a better matchup with Baltimore, and I'll explain that later when we go through the divisional round. So that's what you have with the Titans and Patriots, you don't have to worry about a seven Super Bowl. You don't have to worry about seeing Brady, Belichick, and company on the sideline there down in Miami for Super Bowl 54. So we can put that to bed. Now, when we go to yesterday's games, the Minnesota-New Orleans game, this was a shocker from this regard. The Saint offense, just like the Patriot defense, uh, excuse me, the Patriot offense, they couldn't muster anything in this game. But that, you have to give credit to the Viking defense. We know that Breeze, even at 41 years of age, he could still be effective. He could still has great touch on the ball. Obviously, the connection with Michael Thomas was just dynamic all year long. And Michael Thomas, although he had seven catches for 70 yards, there were a quiet seven catches, quiet 70 yards, not really impactful in this game at all. And to me, when you look at this game on a whole, of course, it's going to be all about Kirk Cousins and the throws that he made, especially the one to Thielen that brought him down to the goal line there in overtime. And then, of course, the touchdown to Kyle Rudolph. And we get that. And Cousins has been slaughtered left and right. I've been killed him over the years. Hasn't been a money player. I even mentioned it weeks ago where, yes, September, October, November, he's a guy that could flourish. And then come December when the games really matter and the money's on the line, he just spits the bit. Well, you can't say that about him this time around. And even with the 20-10 to 10 lead that they had, and Taysom Hill was pretty much the sane MVP of this game when you think about it because of what he did with his legs, with his arm. I mean, he pretty much did it all. And whether your name was Alvin Kamara, who only had 15 touches in the game, as we talked about, Michael Thomas didn't really have his fingerprints on in this game. It was just a struggle for the Saints to be able to move the ball as Breeze was pressured, as the front seven for the Vikings was certainly dominant. And I said it yesterday, I tweeted, I said, the Vikings lose this game, 
up 20 to 10 going in the fourth quarter, it would have been just a total embarrassment and injustice considering that, and again, going back to that 60-minute mantra, if they would have stubbed their toe and certainly as they gave the lead back to the Saints and they actually got the equalizer and they tied the game late, as we know, just knowing that the Vikings, if they weren't going to make it out of overtime with a victory, that certainly would have added more to the misery and to the bitterness of their fan base for over the years. As we all know, the Vikings and their fans have certainly are synonymous with brutal playoff losses. But this, the Saints, you want to talk about synonymous with brutal playoff losses? This is the third straight year that they've had to suffer with just excruciating losses. And twice at the hands of the Minnesota Vikings. But I'll get to that in a second. As far as the game is concerned, it was a game where Minnesota was the better team. I get that the Saints, and for everything they've done this year, and having the home game, as we all know, home field advantage doesn't mean anything anymore. At least to me it doesn't. And think about it. Three of the road teams won over the weekend. The only game that mattered as far as the home team and the home field advantage, and who knows if it was much of an advantage considering they were down 16-0 and the game was Houston. But the Saints, they were certainly able to come back, and you kind of felt that that was going to happen, down 20-10, to 10, the touchdown to Taysom Hill. And then later we all also thought that that fumble there by Dalvin Cook, which he was down before the ball popped out, but on first glance you looked at it and you're like, oh, geez, don't tell me the Saints – they're going to pull this game out of their rear end. They were going to be up 24-20, even though there was still plenty of time to go through. I think it was 341 to go in the game. But, of course, the right call was made as he was down on contact. The Saints there, of course, tied the game, as we know. And then in overtime, they won the coin toss, took the ball downfield. And, of course, the big throw there was to Thielen, where the play before, the cornerback, Lattimore, was out of the game where he got banged up. And then, obviously, there was a blown coverage where how could you let anybody get past your secondary there late, especially in overtime when you know that the team, once they score a touchdown upon first possession, the game's over. And give credit to the Saints, though, for those two plays on first and second down, they stopped them, and I thought that they were going to stop them there. I thought Minnesota should have passed on second down, and I get you have Dalvin Cook, I understand that, but just to kind of keep them on their toes, keep them a little off balance, but they ran those two plays, and then, obviously, they got the matchup that they wanted there with Rudolph, the fade in the corner, touchdown, and away you go. And just a, what could you say, another bitter pill for the Saints, for Drew Brees, for the Super Bowl aspirations, their championship windows slowly closing. Listen, I certainly aren't going to feel sorry for them. I'm not a Saints fan, but that's just how football is. You get that big, giant slice of humble pie. Everybody picked the Saints this past week. I picked them. Not that I didn't think that the Vikings had it in them. We know that they're going to be a tough out moving forward. But you figure the Saints in their building, why they're wearing the white uniforms is beyond me. And I know that that's minutia and nobody really cares. But to me, if you wear black all year or black is your home color, why did you wear the white? I don't know. I get it silly. I understand that. But it's just to me, sometimes when, put it this way, that's like the Cowboys at home wearing blue. Or if the Steelers ever wore white at home. You know, that's the color you wear. Wear that color. But anyway... I digress. So you had the Saints losing a tough game, and then the Sunday night capper, which wasn't as wild as the first three games by any stretch, but the Seattle Seahawks, who went to Philadelphia in November and won by the score of 17-9, well, guess what? Exact carbon copy yesterday at the link, 17-9. It was me, all Russell Wilson, and DK Metcalf. Those were the stars of the game. And the Seattle defense, but then at the same time, when Carson Wentz goes out pretty much of the first quarter where he gets that hit to the head, and you saw that. It was almost a spear job by Jadavian Clowney. I know the Eagles, they want to look at that hit as dirty. Clowney denies any intention of trying to maim him or hurt him for that regard. And I tell you, that, that was a tough blow for the Eagles considering they were 5-7. and seven. They went four in a row to get to the postseason. And obviously, all the talk in Philadelphia over the last two years was Nick Foles and how Carson Wentz wasn't the guy. And now Wentz had his chance to see if he could at least get the one full playoff game under his belt and he couldn't even make it out of the first quarter. So when you have Josh McCown coming in, who, as we all know, is a career backup, first time getting playoff action in at the age of 40, which I believe is an NFL record, you know, ever first ever starting a postseason at 40 years old, oldest player to do so. And for the Eagles... 
as much as they were scrappy and a little feisty and even frisky at times, they certainly weren't going to, it wasn't going to be enough for them to overcome the loss of Wentz to win this game. Now, they had their opportunities, though. They had their opportunities, and I get that at 17 9, when you look at that blown play by Miles Sanders on that fourth and five, that they went for it, and I thought it was smart for Peterson to do so. I get that if you kick a field goal there, you're not thinking that you're going to get the ball back, in which they did, and they failed even then when they had another opportunity there at fourth down, but of course, they weren't able to convert. So they had two opportunities. So even at 17-12, not knowing that you're going to get the ball back, you still have to get a touchdown anyway. So to me, I thought that was the right play by Peterson. But it was just Sanders dropping the ball. And that was a tough blow because if he would have he would have completed it, he possibly could have gotten even into the end zone. And I get that you have to also convert two, but at least you'd have a chance to go in there for the equalizer. And with that drop, we'll never know if that would be the case. So the Seahawks come back east. After a brutal loss at home there Sunday night to the Niners where they lost a home game. It would have been a three-seed, and obviously San Francisco would have had to go on the road. They would have been playing in this game yesterday. But give the Seahawks credit. They had enough medal, enough gumption, that championship toughness, especially with the quarterback and the head coach there. And that's all there is to talk about that game. Eagles had their chances, but even if they would have won the game, they wouldn't have gone far because who knows with Wentz. He probably would have been in concussion protocol. They would have gone to Green Bay in a place where they actually won earlier this year. But still, when you look at it from a whole, the Eagles, who were in playoff games pretty much since Week 13, who knows if they would have had enough fight left, even if they would have won this game, or even if they would have tied the game, if they would have still been able to pull it out, you figure that the Seahawks, that would have been an opportunity for them to do so as far as maybe pushing an overtime if they would have gotten the equalizer there. But that wasn't the case. As we all know, the Seahawks won, and now they move on to Green Bay next weekend. So that's your themes. Road teams were victorious, both of them being the six seeds with Minnesota and Tennessee. Breeze and Brady, who knows what's going to happen next. And then now we can look forward to a divisional round, which to me is going to be fascinating. You only have, just like this week, you had the one game where you're going to have a rematch at Houston and Kansas City. All the other games are going to be first-time matchups. And to quickly go through them, Minnesota-San Francisco, minnesota I think this is going to be a tough spot for them for this reason. Forget about the rest. Forget about home field. That has nothing to do with it. San Francisco's defense is just as good as Minnesota's. And you figure they're going to do enough to stop them. Now, if Minnesota has their A game on defense with Garoppolo getting his first playoff start and obviously a a lot of young players on that offensive side and even the defensive side for that matter, you kind of wonder if the inexperience will kick in. That's not to say Minnesota has been perennial postseason players here over the years, but at the same time, if you're Minnesota, you got to match up with them defensively and even try to get a defensive touchdown if that's the case. Because the Niners, they're going to be flying all over the ball. I'm sure they're going to do everything in their power to stop Dalvin Cook and then have Kirk Cousins beat them. And then you would expect whether the combination of George Kittle, Debo Samuel, and even Emmanuel Sanders, they're going to play a big part in them winning this game and even whatever they could do on the ground. What's it? Rasheem Mostart, he's been a guy that has certainly been off and on, but has been very surprising here in the second half of the year. Let's give them a little bit of a ground game, some semblance of a ground game. And I think the Niners, listen, they've been waiting for this moment all year, and they were able to get that one seed. I think it's going to be a tough game. If the Vikings defense shows up, the Vikings can win this game. But if for whatever the reason they don't and they let Garoppolo and company go up and down the field, it's going to be a long afternoon. As far as the... Sunday, uh, the Saturday night game. This is where I find this game fascinating. I'm glad it's not going to be New England or Baltimore because Baltimore would have annihilated them, just like they did in the regular season in that Sunday night game. And right now, the weather is supposed to actually be very mild coming Saturday night in Baltimore. But here's, to me, the bottom line of this game is who's going to win in the trenches. It's all about the line of scrimmage and who's going to be much more physical. That's, to me, the bottom line. I get field position to a certain extent because if the Titans are going to start at their whatever, 10-yard line, and the same for the Ravens, but we both know that these are run-oriented offenses. And to me, who's going to win the line of scrimmage, who's going to win the war of attrition there in the trenches is the bottom line. Will Derrick Henry and company chew up the clock the way they did against New England and try to keep Lamar Jackson and company off the field? Or will Lamar Jackson and company rush for 250 yards as they've been doing, it seems, all year long, en route to a 
ticket punching to an AFC Championship game where they'll be hosting, whether it be Houston or Kansas City, entering their building. So that's what you have there. And as far as the Sunday games, which they moved up the times, 3.05 and 6.40, Houston and Kansas City is an interesting spot. Now, just like I said earlier, if this was Houston at Baltimore, considering that Baltimore annihilated them in the regular season, I would think Houston would play a lot more competitive, but they would certainly lose that game. Here, I think it's going to be the opposite. Although Houston could say, hey, we won in Kansas City. We did a great job. I believe Mahomes wasn't the quarterback at that time. And even if he was, Mahomes is certainly a lot healthier and a lot better than he was now than he was then. And I would think that with Kansas City and everything that took place last year and just to turn the twist of fate that took place there last week in their building when they beat the Chargers and, of course, New England was upset at home by Miami, I think they know that they have a golden opportunity to get back to a Super Bowl. And I'm sure they're going to be well aware of hearing all week how Houston went into their building and beat them, whatever it was, week five, week six, week seven. So just that alone, I think Houston could be competitive. But as we all know, They were inept in that first half, and the Buffalo defense, although it's better than Kansas City, but Kansas City's defense has certainly stepped up here over the last month or so. I can see Kansas City just winning this game flat out, start to finish. Could Houston hang in the game? I think they can, but could the magic of Deshaun Watson rear its beautiful head again? Could it? Yeah. But who knows what the weather's going to be like in Kansas City, so that's certainly something to keep our eye on. And then you're also looking at the matchup in Green Bay, which you're hoping some snow. You know it's going to be cold weather. Seattle. Now, to me, I think what's going to be critical in this game is Marshawn Lynch. Now, I'm not expecting a lot from him. There's no way that he's going to touch the ball 25 times. The guy just pretty much came out from under a rock over the last year. But the reason why I bring him up is that he's going to be into some key spots where they're going to have to move the ball, and you know it's going to be cold. Now, the one thing about this Packer team especially from an offensive standpoint, they certainly haven't been the juggernaut that they've been in years past. And even teams that were 15-1 and and didn't make it to the Super Bowl. So let me put that in the equation. That were much better than this team. But they've been resourceful. They have a good running back in Aaron Jones. They don't have the sexy weapons that they've had in the years past. And when you look at the Packers overall, especially in their building, they've certainly been, over the years, as dominant and as good as a home team in the postseason as it's been in quite some time. But Seattle, you know if they're going to be in this game or at least within a score and could certainly make a play. And I understand Jadavian Clowney is going to be a huge part of this game. And we understand Clowney could come and go in these games. He could be that dominant pass force, that rush that a lot of people thought he would be when he came out of college and has shown glimpses throughout his career. Or is he going to be that guy that's just going to fizzle and his name won't even be called in the three hours that you're going to watch this game. But I would think Seattle, I think they're going to put up a good fight, but you would think Green Bay is going to eke out with a win. So I would think going into this weekend, the best shot of the upset is Tennessee. I think Tennessee has what it takes not to make Mike Vrabel out to be Vince Lombardi by any stretch because he also made a couple of puzzling moves in the game on Saturday night, but at the same time, you know that he's going to go to his bread and butter until there's zeros on the clock. Derrick Henry had, what, 34 carries the other day? I wouldn't be surprised he gets the same amount of carries this week. Because even if they're down 10 nothing in the first quarter, they're still going to run that ball. There's no way that they're going to have Ryan Tannehill throw 35, 40 times in this game. I mean, unless they're down 21 nothing. But I think Tennessee has the best chance to upset. But I would think it's going to be chalk this weekend. I could see the ones and twos coming out alive, and then you have your championship round the following week. Listen, I'm hoping for Tennessee to upset Baltimore. Oh, geez. I'll be on this podcast next week doing cartwheels. But that's why they play the games, and we'll certainly delve into that next week here on the podcast. Just some quick news and notes in the NFL. The Jason Garrett saga is over, thank goodness. Now, it took, it seemed like a month which is a joke. I get that they had these three meetings. Why the three meetings is beyond me. It was almost as if, as if Jerry Jones was trying to let down his girlfriend in the to have the softest landing as he could possibly give to a one Jason Garrett, which is an absolute joke because we all know it's a business. 
You know, this isn't anything about pleasure. It's anything about personal. It's not a thing that, oh, Jason Garrett's a bad guy. Jerry Jones, I get he has a soft spot for him, but all he had to do was just walk into his office there on Monday morning to say, Jason, thank you for all the years. This is a very tough choice for me to do, but it's best if we just let you go. We're going to start anew, and that's it. And you know what? I'm sure Jason Garrett would have understood. But, of course, it took a whole week. I don't know if that's just typical Cowboys, the drama. We have to have all this suspense and everything hanging in the balance as far as what the coaching decision was going to be or whether he was going to be fired or put somewhere else in the organization, whatever it may be. But thank goodness it was over and done with. So now they could go ahead and find their head coach. And if you're a Cowboy fan, I'm sure you want to look for a guy that's going to be not only a proven winner, a la Mike McCarthy, not saying he's going to get the job, but someone like that, or someone that's going to be young, but it's going to know what they're going to do and they're going to go in there with a plan and not be the puppet that Jason Garrett has been for the last 10 years. But as long as Jerry's alive and he's owning this team, we know darn well that that's not, probably not going to be the case. He's probably going to get another young guy, analytics, that he could just pretty much pull the strings and away we go. But we'll see. And then you had Ron Rivera, who is now the coach of the Redskins. So we'll see how he does moving forward. And the Giants, we understand that they don't have a head coach as of yet. Who knows if Josh McDaniels, that's a name that's been thrown around now, besides Matt Rule, the coach of Baylor. Although Rule did say last week that he was going to stay at Baylor. He wasn't going to go anywhere. So we'll see if even Mike McCarthy is part of that mix. As I'm sure the Giants, they want to have some stability and have a guy that obviously has a proven track record. So you got that going on. And John Dorsey out as the GM of the Cleveland Browns. And this is what you don't understand about the Browns. So the owner... Jimmy Haslam, comes out and says that we're going to hire a coach before we hire a GM. Well, that's just typical Browns. Why even bother? Why go down that road? It should be a thing where get your GM so he could go ahead and make the decisions and bring in the coach, and then from there, go off and get the guy that you know is going to hopefully man your club for the next five to ten years. And I got news for you. I know he's retired. I know he's off to the sunset, and his name has not been brought up. But if I'm Jimmy Haslam, the first call that I'm making to be my president, GM of operations, I don't know if we'll take it. Maybe with the, I'm sure with a King's Ransom, we probably would. And why not bring him back into the fold to where he belonged all along, Ozzie Newsom? Uh, am I wrong? Am I insane for thinking that? If you bring Ozzie Newsom to be the VP of operations for the Cleveland Browns, do it right now. Then you can get your coach. Then you'll have stability. You don't have to worry about any of this nonsense. And we know the track record of Ozzie Newsom. Uh, I don't even need to go get into it. Even if you're a novice sports fan, you know who that name is. And if you're not, Google it. I mean, I could get into it, but, you know, obviously they've got other things to attend to before we say goodbye. But at the same time, that is the guy that you hire. You just throw a boatload of money at him. Jimmy has him. Here's the team. It's all yours. And away you go. So that's what you have there with the NFL. Now, as far as the college football is concerned, of course, I have nothing to discuss because you have the national championship game, which is going to take place on President's Monday. Oh, no, I'm kidding. On Martin Luther King. No, 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 I'm kidding. Next Monday. So, yeah, Martin Luther King is two weeks from today. But it's a joke that the championship game is just 16 days after the college football playoff doubleheader weekend. I mean, what could you say? Uh, Just a joke. But obviously, I'll touch more on that on next week's podcast, give you a prediction, et cetera, so on and so forth. So, obviously, we have a week to chew on that before we crown a champion in college football. All right. Uh, yeah, let me turn my attention to the NBA and David Stern. And that was uh, from very sad news to start off the year. And you've also had a couple of other deaths in sports, which we'll get to later on, unfortunately. Not a way you want to kick off the new decade. But uh, David Stern, as we all know, tons of accolades and bouquets will be thrown at his feet from me. Obviously, I didn't know him personally, but he was a guy that obviously was very... Spunky was a guy that was a pit bull. We all know he was a former lawyer. He dates back to the 60s as far as the NBA is concerned, but then became commissioner in 1984 after Lawrence O'Brien had stepped away. And what he did to certainly bring the NBA to the heights that that it is now, uh, a lot of it is on his watch, and a lot of it he has his fingerprints all over. That's all there is to it. And I get that when he came in, was the time when the NBA was starting to heat up with the Magic Bird rivalry of the Lakers and Celtics. 
Obviously, Michael Jordan coming into the league certainly, I mean, exponentially helped. And then everything that he did to push the game to where it is from a global standpoint is something that we haven't seen in any of the four sports. Obviously, the NFL is trying to do that now. They've been doing it for years with the international games, which to me uh, certainly doesn't have the same impact as it does with the NBA. As we all know, the NBA has players coming from all over the globe where we're not seeing that in the NFL. Of course, we see that in baseball, but at the same time, again, it does not have the same impact, whether it's from a marketing standpoint, whether it's from marketing certain players in that regard. And that's what the NBA does well, and a lot of that has to do with David Stern. He had the foresight to look ahead and say, no, if these guys are coming in, whether your name is Dirk Nowitzki, whether your name is Manu Ginobili, whether your name now Luka Doncic, which I understand is now long after he become commissioner, but if it wasn't for Dirk Nowitzki, there wouldn't be a Luka Doncic. And when you have players coming from, whether it's Africa, whether it's Eastern Europe, uh, you name it, South America, that's why the game is as popular as it's ever been. And a lot of that has to do with him. And it's just sad that he had the brain hemorrhage and had the emergency surgery. You were hoping that he'd be able to recover and get back to his regular life, but that, that wasn't to be. And it's just a shame because for everything that he's done and obviously the outpouring of love and support and prayers and everything from not only the current commissioner, but coaches, players, et cetera, you name it. You know, a lot of people looking at it as my dream was to shake David Stern's hand on the day of the draft, knowing that I'm part of this league. And him being the commissioner was just a major part of what the NBA is today. And it's just sad to see him go at the age of 77. As far as the NBA landscape is concerned, every much is pretty, pretty much everything is status quo when you look at it from the top. The one thing is that the... Sixers look like they've hit the skids here as they've lost four in a row. And then even you kind of wonder if there's going to be, I don't want to say dissension. I'm not going to go as strong as that. But even Joel Embiid is looking around trying to search for answers where the Sixer team, as we all know, has a lot of bigs, can't space the floor, certainly should be a lot better than what they are. But again, when you don't have the shooters and certain personnel, you're going to look in a half court where your offense could be stagnant, and obviously a lot of these guys are going to play on the perimeter, as we know that's the game it is today, and you kind of wonder, they'll snap out of it, and I'm sure they're going to have their run. But the Sixers right now, I'm not going to say they're fading fast, but when you look at it from a standpoint of the conference, they're now nine games back of the Milwaukee Bucks. So when you look at it from a standpoint of a lot of people thought that was going to be Sixers and Bucks for an Eastern Conference, to think they were playing a second round if the season would end today. Now, of course, I'm getting way ahead of myself, but you get the idea as Philly with still plenty of games to go. And by the time we get on the air next week, the season will be halfway through as they've already played 37 games. So just something to keep an eye on there. Philly tries to get their season turned around with this uh, recent stretch here of just in at play. And then you have, uh, you know, out west is pretty much the same. Lakers have now won five in a row after they lost four in a row. Give it up for OKC. They've certainly started off very slow, and here they are. They've turned it on to the point where, although they're seventh in the East, or excuse me, in the West, but they're now 20 and 15, and they've won five in a row, nine of 10. Good job by them. But the thing is that even with San Antonio, funny enough, San Antonio at 14 and 20, but they hold the eighth seed currently in the Western Conference to think that there are four teams separated by a half game. And when you think about it, five teams separated by a game. So even if you're Memphis, if you're Portland, Minnesota, Phoenix, you're certainly within reach of that eighth seed, although you'll be a sacrificial lamb to the Lakers in the first round. But hey, making a postseason does mean something, I guess, especially if you're in those towns that have not made the postseason in quite some time. More so if you're Phoenix, Minnesota, Portland shouldn't be down there. We know they had a rough start and you know they've been in and out ever since, even with Carmelo Anthony. But, I mean, that's what you pretty much have in the NBA so far. I know Kyrie, he's weighing his options on his shoulder. He's been out all this time. He's still going through rehab. That's a tough stretch there where a lot of people thought the Nets were going to be just a lot better. They're two games under now. They've been very inconsistent. I get that they don't have a full team. We know about Durant not playing this year, but Kyrie 
has missed all these games and certainly starting to show a little bit, even with Karis LeVert coming back into the lineup. So uh, certainly we'll keep our fingers on the pulse here with the NBA as we continue to move forward. But other than that, nothing really shocking, nothing of note there in the association. As far as the NHL is concerned, I know you had the Winter Classic there in Dallas, which was a little bit different. I get that when you think of Winter Classics, you're thinking of the Northeast or the Midwest, where next year it's finally going to be in Minnesota. And you figure that's going to be Blackhawks and Wild to play. And I think that's going to be a target field, I would think. I don't think it'll be at the University of Minnesota. Of course, it's not going to be at the Vikings home, the U.S. Bank Stadium, because it's an indoor stadium. So obviously that will not be the case. But as far as the Classic is concerned, the Stars win 4-2. Big crowd. I didn't see any of the game. But uh, I know that's a newsworthy thing when you look at it from a standpoint of it's outdoors. It's pretty much the only thing other than some college football that you want to watch there on New Year's Day. But uh, as far as the NHL, which their all-star break is in a couple weeks, and you look at it from a standpoint of who are the top teams in the league, I'm not going to go through all the standings because pretty much everything has been status quo, although out west it's flip-flop there. Now Vegas has the top spot there as they uh, have been very good here as of late. Even the Canucks have won seven in a row. But right now you're looking at Boston and Washington being the top two seeds. And, of course, Boston, who have hit a stretch here where they've lost three in a row, but they're certainly coming off a cup final where they went to a seventh game and lost. They're going to be formidable, you would think, from here on out. I picked them to go to the finals, if you ask me. So even with Washington and what they've done this year, I'm certainly not going to look at it from a standpoint of that it's a, an automatic shoe and that they're going to make it to a cup final despite them winning one two years ago. But the Penguins have certainly played a lot better, and the Islanders have now slipped from second place where they had a pretty much stranglehold for most of the year. So the Penguins now have leapfrogged them to a point where they're 55 points to the Islanders 53. Now they do have a couple games in hand overall, so we'll see how that plays out down the road. But the NHL... When you're looking at it from a whole, it's pretty much Bruins, Capitals, St. Louis. I understand the Penguins are hot, and the teams out west, you know, Vegas, even Anaheim has played particularly well here. And then also, I should say Arizona. Sorry, I said Anaheim. Forgive me. Anaheim, of course, at the bottom there with the Kings. I meant the Arizona Coyotes. Remember, they made that trade for Taylor Hall. And... Vancouver, who have won seven in a row, and even the Edmonton Oilers, they've certainly slipped here, and I've always been on the, not say oiler bandwagon, but just the oiler bandwagon from the standpoint of them having the young talent and, of course, Connor McDavid to be that guy to finally lead him to the promised land, considering he's been in the league three, four years. So that's what we got with the NHL. As far as the baseball is concerned, let me touch on that real quick. The one sad note was former Yankee pitcher Don Larson, who, of course, known throughout the world for pitching a perfect game in the 1956 World Series, passed away at the age of 90. Now, of course, he lived a great life. And a lot of people, when they look at Don Larson, they look at a guy that was a World Series hero, obviously doing something that has never been done in the history of baseball, but, of course, was a mediocre pitcher at best. But it even just goes to show you that even a mediocre pitcher could have his day in the sun, which he did back in, I believe it was October 8th, 1956, and I believe it was Game 5. And, of course, the Yankees won that World Series back in that year. So that was also another sad note as we enter in the new year. But to bring some sunshine and some blooming flowers, well, it's way too early for some blooming flowers, but as far as just from a emotional, psychological, even mental standpoint, just to think that five weeks from today, pitchers and catchers will report throughout Major League Baseball is an absolute shock. Now, we understand that the baseball season now starts a little bit earlier, as I believe March 26th is opening day. But to think that pitchers and catchers, when they usually report late February, and you could start thinking in the teeth of a winter where there's a lot of, especially here in the Northeast, where a lot of snow, the cold, ice, etc., where so far, and it's early, knock on wood, so far, the weather has been particularly mild. Just to even think about pitchers and catchers right now is something that I can't even wrap my head around considering that we're still in the middle of an NFL playoff and that everything else is going on, whether it's waiting for the college football playoff, et cetera. But it's just good to know 
that as we click off these weeks and as we get closer to baseball, it's just amazing to think that it's going to be here before you know it. Now, we get that once we get to pitchers and catchers, you still have six weeks to get to a regular season and obviously an exhibition season, et cetera. But again, just uh, bringing it up right now is music to my ears and actually just very surprising since we're just getting started with winter. I mean, winter officially started, what, December 21st, and here we are January 6th. So, But again, I guess that's for the people that are looking forward to spring and for baseball and thinking of warmer thoughts, things of that nature. So we're just five weeks away from that. So if you want to uh, hang your head on that, please do. Other than that, everything is pretty much quiet on the hot stove front. I know the Twins signed Rich Hill and Homer Bailey to keep that pitching staff at least... Halfway decent behind a one, Jose Berrios. So you have those two guys that you could put into your rotation. Both guys are soft toss pitchers. Rich Hills, we know, with the Dodgers. Homer Bailey, who had bounced around last year with the A's. And uh, believe what he start the year off with the Kansas City Royals. Uh, other than that, that's what you have. I mean, you don't have Donaldson. Who knows what's going to happen there as far as if he's going to be with the Nats. I know the Nats signed Will Harris to a two-year deal who was formerly of the Houston Astros, and we all know Will Harris was the one to give up the home run there to Howie Kendrick in the World Series. You also have the Nats, who are kind of wheeling and dealing over the past week. They re-signed Azdrubal Cabrera for one year. That's right, they signed a two-year deal for Starling Castro. So there's a guy that you could pretty much plug in. You would think second base, Cabrera's going to be a guy that's going to come off the bench. Same with Howie Kendrick, late inning guy, or probably play first base. So the Nets doing a little wheeling and dealing themselves to fortify their roster and hopefully defend that crown, as I've said before. But uh, besides that, nothing else as far as Marcelo Zuna or even Josh Donaldson. So we'll see where he may end up in the weeks to come as we still have plenty of time before any of these training camps break to start off for the spring. And let me cut right to it, my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week is Sam Weish, the former coach of the Cincinnati Bengals and also the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He also passed away just a few days ago at the age of 74. The reason why I bring him up is because he was one of those old school fiery coaches, of course, under the tree of Bill Walsh, the legendary San Francisco 49er head coach. He was a guy that, back in that AFC Central especially, was very feisty, was a guy that took no prisoners, obviously took his team, the 88 team, to a Super Bowl where they lost just by inches to Joe Montana, John Taylor, and the Niners of that season, Super Bowl 23. But he was a guy who certainly had his issues with health over the years, I believe had melanoma, had to get a, if I'm not mistaken, I want to say some sort of transplant with one of his organs, was able to live for a few more years, but fought to the very end and died at the age of 74 so when I think of Sam Weish, I think of two things. One, I think of the famous quote where the Bengal fans at the Old Riverfront Stadium were throwing debris onto the field, I believe snowballs, and he got onto the microphone on the field and says, if anybody is caught throwing stuff onto the field, you're going to be ejected from the stadium. You don't live in Cleveland. You live in Cincinnati. That was classic. And then, of course, the hatred that he had for a one Jerry Glanville the coach of the Houston Oilers at the time when up 61-7, to he's going for an onside kick and just stuff like that you're never going to see again. And he had the fire of a bull. He was certainly a guy that was hard-nosed and tough but certainly gained a lot of respect over the years from the players that played for him. So one, Sam Weish is my hero of the week, passing at the age of 74. And my zero of the week, it's a strange one, but... 88 seconds into the game to get ejected for one Isaiah Thomas of the Washington Wizards. And I understand he looked around and said, what did I do? What happened? He had the ball there in the game Friday night against the Portland Trailblazers. And as he was being double teamed there, right there by the sideline near the bench, and he tried to call a timeout, but then there was a foul called, and he ended up pushing the referee away where he gave him a double technical and ejected him. Uh, Obviously, I understand... He was probably not even looking at the ref or even thinking of the ref at that time. So therefore, considering that he was being crowded by these two players and then with the ref being right there and then just pushing away, certainly was not a good look. And obviously, I'm sure he's probably going to get suspended for that. 
But uh, a one Isaiah Thomas who has been in the news lately, even for going into the stands where he was being heckled by a fan, certainly not good. So to compound that, unfortunately, my guy, and he was a former Celtic and a great one at that for the two years that he was up in Boston, he is my zero of the week. So that will do it, people. Thanks very much for downloading and listening to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the wonderful world of sports. If you want to continue to support the podcast or if you feel as if, hey, I gave Jay Reels the shot and, wow, he sounded pretty good. He was a little zany, a little crazy, whatever it may be, but he was certainly informative, incredible, and entertaining because that's all I want to be when I put forth this podcast each and every week. You could do so by just hitting subscribe where on wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. All I would uh, imply you to do or implore you to do is just not only subscribe, leave a rating, post a review, Please, what that's going to do is going to help considerably with this podcast as far as visibility is concerned and also generating interest to the likes of getting some various guests on this podcast, whether they're former athletes, current athletes, sportscasters, broadcasters, writers, etc. So please, if you could go ahead and do that, or if you want to leave any questions, comments, criticism, praise, you could do that on any of my social media accounts. You can follow me on Instagram at jreels, on Twitter, jreels1, just a number, the J Reels Podcast on my Facebook fan page, and you can even send me an email at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Please, I'm open to any questions, whatever you may have. Please send them over to me, and uh, please go ahead and follow me on any of those platforms as well. Again, without you guys, there'd be no show because obviously the support by you is immeasurable. I thank you very much for supporting me in the past and listening to this podcast as we enter in not only just a new year, but a new decade. And if you could go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And lastly, if you want to support this endeavor as far as contributing to the podcast, whether it's the production, the advertising, which look out for commercial because I have it ready to go. Check my social media accounts for any updates on that, which will probably go within the next week. So please keep your eyes out for that because that's going to be posted everywhere on all my social media accounts and I'm going to promote that big time. But for any contributions to the podcast, you could do so at www.patreon.com that's p as in paul a t as in tom r e o n as in nancy.com slash the j reels podcast and again i'd be forever grateful and thankful for your contributions and support because as you well know i love to talk about sports this is what i want to do this is my passion people you know that and i'm going to continue to do so week in and week out hopefully twice a week to talk about everything that goes on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J. Rose Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beast, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J. Rose Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>